Welcome everyone to a brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We've talked a lot about pain and the back and the spine and all those things in previous podcasts. And today we're going to get a masterclass in it from our guest. Um, but before we do that, if you're not already on the mailing list, please go and do that. I ask you at the beginning of every single episode, and that's because we don't want to lose communication with you like we did when we lost your Instagram page. So go ahead and do that. But first, let's get into this episode. Before we get into this episode, we also just want to state that the opinions and statements in this episode made by our guest are not reflective of his employer, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and are solely his. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. The Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. So typically on these episodes, we've interviewed uh, either attending physicians or people who have been in the field for a long time. And today we're breaking a little bit from that, but for very good reason. Today we're actually interviewing the academic chief resident um, of the Department of PM&R at UPMC, which is the University of Pittsburgh. And um, this is Dr. Jim Eubanks. So he has already had a tremendous amount of experience and is actually now on the clinical practice guideline committee for the North American Spine Society, which is a pretty big deal. Um, and he's also already has a master's in sports and science in rehab, as well as previously having a doctor of chiropractic degree. He's also heavily involved in like resident education, helping out younger people within the field, field of PM&R, like getting their steps, connecting them with mentorship. So proud to have him on the podcast. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much for having me. Now, like I said, um, you have a lot of experience with like pain in the back. So that's kind of what we're going to dive into here. But before we do that, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you kind of hope to accomplish in the future, seeing as you're just now about to graduate residency pretty soon? Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, I was a previously a chiropractor. Um, but I had a unique uh, opportunity to work in an orthopedic practice, and it was the largest orthopedic practice in the country, actually, Ortho Carolina. Um, I worked in their spine center under the direction of the late Craig Brigham, who was their spine uh, surgery fellowship director and one of their uh, presidents uh, at the time of their formation. Um, so I had that experience moving into medicine Turns out that uh, Dr. Brigham was friends with a physiatrist named Jim Rainville, who just recently retired, but is uh, in Boston at the New England Baptist Hospital. And so I went and spent time with him uh, during the summers for three years in a row, actually. And it was at that point that I realized what physiatry was able to bring to the table um, in terms of its unique perspective on medicine and in particular, the problems of uh, musculoskeletal care. So that's, that's sort of the introduction there. Went back to medical school, um, pretty much with the intent of going into PM&R from the get-go. In fact, I wrote my essay for medical school, uh, partly about PM&R, and um, stayed on the path. And here I am now at UPMC, about to finish up. I'm in my final year. 
Definitely. We actually share that interest. I didn't write about it in my uh, entrance essays, but I also knew about PM&R before I went to med school. Um, it's it. always very rare to find someone else who is that way. I did not have any previous experience, though. Like, I didn't work um, for, like, anyone who happened mm -hmm. to be a physiatrist. I just happened to shadow one. I thought it was super cool. So I've been sold since. So that's, that's good to know that there's common interest there. Um, what do you hope to do once you graduate residency? Like you have so many years um, that I'm hoping um, you're planning to do something with that just because you have some tremendous experience, probably will make some big changes. But what do you plan to do? Yeah, well, I hope to bring a lot of my experience uh, working across disciplines uh, into the field. You know, physiatry has a lot to offer in terms of uh, its diagnostic workup, its understanding of rehabilitation and the functional needs of patients. Um, as well as procedures. And so there are procedures that, that work really well for uh, removing certain types of um, obstacles to recovery uh, that, that physiatry does very well. And so I think uh, combining all of those things uh, in the practice will be useful and beneficial. One of the things that's certainly uh, of value uh, in terms of my circuitous route you know, to, to medicine is um, understanding different uh, perspectives and um, entry ways into the health system, particularly on the rehab side. And so I've worked very closely with, you know, chiropractors, of course, but also physical therapists, occupational therapists, um, and then surgeons as well. So having an understanding for what they do, how they think, and bringing that into some kind of useful clinical format where we can all understand each other better is one of my major goals because we've got a, a major um, uh, musculoskeletal burden that we're not handling very well. And that, that's kind of the primary impetus for my you know, move into medicine. And that's one of the reasons that I am also pursuing physiatry is because, well, um, there is definitely a huge deficit in musculoskeletal medicine. I also hope to make some sort of change in there. But kind of going back to the kind of experience and the crosstalk between all these different um, fields, one of the things we do on the podcast is kind of have that crosstalk from so many different perspectives of people with preventive medicine, whether it's someone who's just like a personal trainer, or someone who's a dietitian, physicians mm -hmm. from different fields, but to you. Um, at your current stage, what does preventive medicine mean to you? So preventive medicine is sometimes a nebulous concept. Um, uh, I, I think a lot of people associate it with uh, particular types of alternative medicine sometimes, but I don't think that's a very useful way to frame it. I think that we should think about preventative, preventative medicine more along the lines of understanding in detail um, the natural history of disease and also what mitigates that, right? And so there are things that we know we can do um, as, as both physicians as well as patients um, to change the course um, of that sort of unimpeded progress, you know, that a particular disease course would take, right? And we want to interfere in ways that are productive and helpful and empowering. And so I think that's the, the way that I like to think about preventative medicine. I absolutely love the way that you put that. Um, just kind of understanding that some like diseases are 
people are on the track for them, I guess, and providing some mm-hmm. useful intervention that also empowers them. I really like the use of your word empowering because then it helps right. them realize, uh, helps the person, also helps the physician realize that um, these people want to do something with their lives. So that's kind of why we're helping with them. That's why we're providing these interventions so that we can prevent them from that natural history, as you're talking about, to hopefully come to a place where they're more uh, capable of doing the things that they want to in life. That's amazing. Correct. Agreed. So when it comes to preventive medicine, then um, kind of there's a lot of prevention that can be done within spinal care, mm-hmm. um, whether it comes to like exercising interventions or whatever it is. But when it comes to your experience also, it looks like you were already interested in the spine before you came to medical school. So how did you get into spinal care? How did this become a huge interest um, for you? And then why did you end up taking the step from going from a chiropractor to medicine? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of elements there. One is that having gone to chiropractic school, uh, which which partly was related to circumstances in life at the time for me, um, I had experience with a, a chronic illness uh, early on during sort of high school undergrad years that um, affected my my course. But nonetheless, chiropractic has at its disposal. Um, uh, non-procedural elements to care that are particularly good for back pain, right? So that just happens to be something that is focused on in that field. So that's one of the pragmatic reasons that I became more aware of the need there. But then quickly you realize there's this tremendous disease burden of spinal pain that is unmet in our traditional health system. Um, partly probably because it is a non-communicable disease and people live with it for long periods, right? Like it's not immediately killing people. Mm-hmm. And there isn't a very good sing- singular procedure that we can do to make it better, right? Like there isn't a lesion in many cases that we can go after. Um, chronic pain is... Uh, often characterized by some kind of musculoskeletal component. And a lot of that is in particular spine related. Um, and so that's, that's part of the reason. And then the other practical uh, occurrence is I happen to um, connect with, with a mentor who was extremely passionate about this. And so I think during our, our years of training early on in our careers, if we happen across someone who is very passionate about something, it's contagious, right? And and that was certainly the case for me. Um, Craig Brigham, uh, who's no longer with us, passed unexpectedly several years ago, but he um, he had this uh, passion for spine disorders and the pain that patients suffer from therein, and it was something that uh, I felt. Uh, um, uh, a, a sort of magnetic, you know, attraction mm-hmm. to that as well while we were going through it. Sounds kind of like a uh, passing of the torch where a lot yeah. of work is done and now it's taken to you and then you're taking that burden, not necessarily burden, but you're going to take the field further. Um, yeah. So- yeah. And, and, and just to interject one more thing that, so, so the, the hard thing for us as healthcare providers is that we aren't doing a good job. We have a lot of data on this. And despite the fact that we've been throwing a lot more money 
at these problems, the outcomes are not improving. They're fundamentally either as bad or worse over the years. And so we've got to change how we approach it. And so I think that's a powerful reason to be interested in trying to fix it if you're a problem For sure. And yeah. And we're going to touch on kind of what we're doing with uh, spinal care and back pain in just a second. But before we get there, I want to ask, uh, I know you mentioned it a little bit previously, but why did you decide to make the switch from being chiropractor to a physician? What was that like? Um, deciding factor that you're like, okay, I should probably go to medical school if I want to do physiatry and go here. Sure. So the the big thing is this concept called cultural authority, which is essentially that you don't have to waste your time justifying yourself to people. Um, so being a physician is is a privilege. It's something we we work hard to get, you know. But nonetheless, once you're there, uh, there are a lot of people that will listen to you and listen to you more. Um, than many other fields. And that includes chiropractic, you know, to be quite frank. I was burning the candle at, at both ends, so to speak, uh, trying to get patients to listen, you know, to the advice I had to say, even though it was um, uh, well cultivated uh, through the, the education that I had been receiving from good mentorship. Um, nonetheless, being a physician was an, was a step that would allow me to do more of what I was interested in doing and not spend so much time on other things. Sure. Um, and now let's, okay, let's attack back pain. We've kind of been dancing around a little bit, but the time is here. It's a big task. So, <laughs> I know, exactly. Uh, we'd probably take like three hours for a full length discussion of just one part of back pain, but we're going to try to do as much as we can with the time we have. So mm -hmm. the first thing I want to ask you is you mentioned already that we are not doing a good job of taking care of people's backs and just like back pain in general. And you mentioned that we're spending a ton of money and um, outcomes are not improving whatsoever. And I recently saw you uh, retweeted an article that you were quoted in talking about how we have so much like there was a JAMA article, I believe. I didn't mm -hmm. fully read everything, but there's just like so many treatment modalities and not really any of them are seriously evidence-based sure there's evidence behind them but do they really help probably not um so kind of what are we doing today how do we get to this point and what's wrong with it yeah so the the short answer to what are we doing today is a whole lot of nothing good <laughs> right we have uh we have large lists of things that you can quote try for back pain right and it's a very unscientific approach. I mean, we basically have low-level evidence for a lot of stuff, and we throw it into lists, and we say this is our general recommendation. And part of that is because we need to do better science. There needs to be better research. Uh, the 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 weight of that needs to be placed on the spine community to do better work. And there's no getting around that because other fields in medicine far out compete us for doing good kinds of science. And so that's, that's a cultural issue. So the culture around musculoskeletal medicine and pain in particular needs to change because pain, the problem itself, the clinical problem as it presents in patients is a very subjective thing, right? Like it's, it's a ball yep. that, that does not follow linear courses, mm -hmm. right? So, so the natural course of pain moves you know, in sort of a, a sinusoidal pattern. Mm -hmm. There are good days, there are bad days. And oh, it yeah. depends on, you know, when you catch the person as to how they report their pain to be at that moment, right? So the, the, the greatest way to see 
improvement in a, a patient's um, pain after an intervention is to ask them two weeks later because that's kind of the natural ebb and flow of things, right? And that's not good. So we need to really think through this and understand that there are differences, important differences between acute pain related to trauma and chronic pain that persists over time and is no longer uh, directly related to a peripheral tissue insult. And I think that's one, I think later, you know, we, we kind of discussed um, some of your thoughts earlier, but that's something that needs to change at the medical student education level, for example. We need a better understanding of pain um, and how it changes over time and also how it exists differently in the nervous system. So it is not a uniform process. The whole mm -hmm. um, Cartesian model of an injury to the toe traveling up, you know, uh, um, the nerve roots to the spine, to the brain, um, it is not adequate for understanding chronic pain. And I think that's, that's a problem that we have to address too. But um, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, what, what we need to be doing differently, a, a big part of that is, is better research, better science, understanding our problems, and then also really owning the fact that most of the kinds of pain around spine-related disorders are chronic. And because of that, they're going to inherently be multimodal, right? So there's not going to be a magic bullet. For any of this, um, and we still don't do a great job acknowledging that fact with patients, and so some of that is 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 essential. The one other major piece here, though, is that you have to have policy that allows you to practice in the ways that need to be practiced to take care of the patient, right? So if you're if you're in a model that only pays for one intervention for someone who has chronic back pain it's a setup for failure in many cases. And mm -hmm. we see that, right? Like one of the, one of the unfortunate sayings in, in um, chronic spine pain is that we see each other's failures, right? So, so the PT see the surgical failures and the surgeons see the PT failures and the physiatrists see failures of each. And it, we pass the ball around a lot instead of definitively understanding what the problem is and how to put together a sensible plan for the patient. Um, so to distill down a very large, massive issue uh, into just a, a, a few paragraphs there, that's what I can say about it right now, yeah. And one of the reasons that I really wanted you on this podcast actually is because of that multi-level um, understanding that you have of the issue where you talked about it from the medical student perspective where, yeah, just graduated medical school. If someone is in pain, it is acutely bad. You need to do something right now. If it doesn't get better, try something else. And that lends itself to that uh, like market of just different options that you just try one thing, you try another thing, and it doesn't really help the patient because they're all just going to be in pain. You don't understand it. But then it also goes to that science level that you're talking about where we actually don't have good science on how do we approach this? What are we doing for this? And then also you talk about the policy level as well, which is also like <clears throat> probably the most important thing in my opinion, because policy kind of dictates everything else. And right now, as of right now, I think everything is trickles down, quote unquote. So from mm -hmm. policy is what uh, kind of makes everyone practice in the way they do. So I love how you approach that. Um, this is also, I love asking loaded questions on this podcast. And mm -hmm. we talked about a multimodal 
uh, approach to kind of back pain. Is there a singular reason that you think people end up in chronic back pain or it's just like one day you wake up and suddenly you're in pain? No one knows why. Yeah. So to be honest, we don't know why. And anyone who says they do is, is, uh, is, is not being forthcoming about it because the reality is that different people respond differently to similar experiences. And we know that we know that much. Um, there's a, there's certainly a big genetic component. We've had some good researchers. Uh, Michelle Battier uh, is, is someone who has done some great work looking at monozygotic twins and how you can have people in um, uh, different types of work in life and genetically their MRIs over the decades will appear very similar. You know, you look at someone who's got a desk job, you look at a, a a laborer who's out in the fields all day doing farm work. And so a lot of our intuitions and assumptions about what causes pain in the back is fundamentally wrong. And we keep saying it. And so we convince ourselves that it's right. But if we take a step back and look at where we acquire that belief, it's not based on anything that's actually justified in science. And so, in fact, we have evidence against most of the things we believe. (laughs) <laughs> so there, there isn't, there isn't good evidence that, you know, posture prevents pain. There isn't good evidence that lifting is bad for your back. There isn't good evidence that, um, you know, running is bad for your knees. In fact, there's been some evidence to suggest that it's good for your knees. And so there is this complex reality that we have to own and come to terms with. And that requires reading. That requires being aware of the literature. And to be frank, not a lot of the people who are dealing with these these cases in patients um, with complex problems are staying updated on the body of literature. I'm not talking about just learning how to do your one procedure. I'm talking about the epidemiology, the natural history, the, the progress that occurs for the average person over time. And, um, those are things that we have to be more cognizant of and, and really, um, uh, make part and parcel of who we are as a spine physician or expert. And yeah. while we're on the topic, you discussed posture. I was going to ask you this later on in the podcast, but you already brought it up. So might as well right now, sure. but you mentioned that posture doesn't necessarily poor posture doesn't necessarily mean that someone's going to be in pain. And we hear this everywhere. In fact, on my run this morning, I was walk, I was uh, running by a, I believe it was a podiatry office. And I think they might've had a mm-hmm. chiropractor in there as well, but there was literally a flyer on the door that had a, like a picture of someone with their like texting and talked about like hundred pounds yeah. of loaded pressure on the neck will cause pain. Go come see us. Is yeah. why is like? Can you just talk about that a little bit? I don't even have a proper question for that. It's just what is the deal yeah. with posture? Yeah. So I mean, we, in different parts of our history, we've had different people come out as champions for certain ideas. And so one positive um, example of that is is uh, Richard Dio, who's an MD, MPH. And he is largely responsible for um, moving us away from bed rest for back pain, right? So that's like a really good example of someone who said, I've got this idea. His happened to be based in research because he's a researcher. He's he's sort of an epidemiologist, public health person. And um, 
on the flip side of that, we have other champions of ideas that uh, probably aren't so helpful. And so we, we in the 80s, we, we had someone who championed this notion that the amount of poundage, you know, placed on the intervertebral discs must be related to disc herniations and things like that. Um, Stuart McGill has at different <laughs> points in his career. Uh, really into, yeah, I mean, right. Like, so really, I'll vindicate him, but you know, he, he really at, at certain points had emphasized, you know, this, this damage theory uh, of posture and movement where, you know, you only have a certain, a set number of flexion moments that you can uh, induce in the spine before you're going to herniate a disc, right? That kind of thing. And a lot of the modeling was not based in living human beings. And it turns out that living human beings have repair mechanisms that like dead pigs don't, right? So when you're doing a biomechanical model, you've got to be aware of that. However, you know, Stu McGill evolves just like all of us do. And we've all had ideas at different points in our career that we, we look back on and we're like, what were we thinking? You know, I've, I've done the same thing, right? And um, so, so that's just another uh, example of, of – if you have an influential person who says something uh, in, in a profound way or very loudly, right? Like a lot of us listen to it. And so um, that's, that's something that we also have to think through because like the text neck thing, we, we literally made that up. Okay. That's not based <laughs> on anything, right? Like it sounds cool. Like, Oh man, it must be right. But there's not good evidence at all that it is a primary driver of spine related pain or disability for people. It's just not. And so postures the same way. We don't have a lot of good evidence. And, and in fact, uh, Peter O'Sullivan um, has worked with some, some folks more recently to show that the state of the evidence for posture is not sufficient to say that we know it leads to bad outcomes. So, that's and, and then I'll, I'll point out one more thing. So there's a big difference between posture, right? Posture, you may want certain posture for certain functional reasons, right? Performance wise, if you're a competitive power lifter, you're going to want technique to be a particular way because you can exert more force through that particular technique or posture, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that's different than someone who has pain in a posture or position and that's also different than someone who has structural change. So someone who's extremely kyphotic from ankylosing spondylitis is not the same as the person who, you know, is bending forward and looking at their iPhone, right? And we have to delineate those things better because we don't right now. So for sure. Yeah. And I think another thing that kind of exacerbates it is that we have people in like companies and entrepreneurs coming out with devices that are kind of building on this already faulty science where they're like, oh, well, uh, put something on your neck that like sends a little buzz through you to make sure that you're standing up straight. Yeah. And exactly. all those things. So it kind of just exacerbates the problem. Right. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode.
Okay, so when it comes to back pain, one of the things that we also like doing in this podcast is kind of having some relatively practical takeaways. Obviously, not medical advice, as you guys just heard in the uh, break. But when it comes to back pain, um, everyone's going to experience some sort of pain in their life. It's part of the human process. Like, we're not going to be pain-free every single day. That's just not possible. And um, part of the natural history of some of these things is that pain will come and it'll go. And some people will have that back pain that's not acute, not due to some sort of acute injury or whatever it is. When should they actually see someone for their back pain? Great question. I think the simplest way to think through that problem is when there's some major uh, functional deficit or impedance in performing your daily activities that you would normally perform. So when things start to change for you in a way that you cannot overcome in a reasonable manner, that's when you probably should seek assistance. Uh, the unfortunate part here, though, is that we have such variability in who to seek assistance from right now. And this is a problem. I have this oh, problem yeah. consistently. Someone will say, hey, I'm in such and such city. Who do you recommend I go to? And this is not a matter of just picking someone because of their degree or where they went to school even, right? Because the way that we practice in, in spine is so different. And uh, there's been some good work looking at the variability in spine surgery, you know, to just pick on surgeons for one moment briefly. <laughs> um, you know, you can look at zip code and see dramatic differences uh, among 100,000 uh, persons that live in that area and the number of spine procedures or surgeries that will be done to them. And uh, that, that says something about, uh, you know, the behavior of us as clinicians rather than the disease prevalence, right, in society, for mm -hmm. example. And so... Um, this is hard. You have to build personal relationships and get to know people well enough that you can make specific recommendations. But, you know, once you, once you have determined that the, the, the pain is to the point where it's really interfering with your daily life, um, it is a hard next step to figure out where to go to get help. And that's something that is, again, that comes back on us as a spine community. We need to do a better job with that. This is not on patients. This is on the spine community to really clean this up and become more standardized in what we do and, uh, and know that we can trust each other more and therefore patients can trust us and what we will tell them to get them back on track. For sure. And one thing that frustrates me about that as well is like, let's say um, you randomly just wake up with a super stiff back one day which happens from time to time. And I guess as you get older, sometimes it might happen more often. But I've woken up with a super stiff back, still gone to the gym and worked out. But you might have other people who just wake up and they're like, wow, my back's terrible. I need to go see someone today. So they go to like an urgent care or to the chiropractor down the street, to a physical therapist, whoever it is, as you're talking about, there's so many different people you can go to. And then someone orders an x-ray and they see that something's out of alignment or somehow let's say they get... Um, what, how, I don't know how this would happen, but let's say they just randomly get an MRI and they have a bulging disc somewhere. Now you started the cascade of just stuff going south. So that's the other thing that frustrates me because one simple thing that natural history would have taken care of probably in the next day or two suddenly becomes a medical issue. And then there's a lot of potential for harm to be done as well. Absolutely. It's a big issue. Um, uh, medicalizing, uh, 
aging is is a big problem with spine and musculoskeletal disorders in general, right? Because as we age, our joints become ugly and uh, they become gnarly and jagged on films. And in MRIs, we all start to have bulging discs and degenerative changes, which, you know, are really age-related changes most of the time, right? Um, so uh, to, to, to kind of pick on the, the chiropractic and therapy community for a second, um, this concept of like sacroiliac joint dysfunction, like that's a meaningless term, right? Like the sacroiliac. I saw joint, you tweeted about that earlier. <laughs> the SI joint is, is 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 one of the banes of my existence, right? Like I hate this this the way that we treat this thing. Um, so so the reality is, that on average, it moves about two and a half millimeters. Okay, this is this is basically a fused joint, super strong. It's arguably the first or second strongest joint in the body. Um, you know, the, being the hip being the other contender of the Y ligament, but. Uh, you know, we, we, we act as if this thing is like palpably out of alignment, which doesn't happen. Right. Like, cause, cause you, you take the, the, the only times you see like open book pelvic fractures or, or maybe an SI joint dislocation is when you're talking about very violent, you know, high speed motor vehicle crashes. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's something that, that we need to remember, uh, for context, but nonetheless, it's it's a uh, it, it's a real issue that we um, try to hone in on what the problem actually is and deliver good information for people um, in, in terms of what they can do for themselves, what we can do for them as physicians or clinicians, and ultimately the purpose is to get them back to life, right? Like the the purpose here is not to just ameliorate them for three months, you know, or whatever the outcome measure period is of our really poorly done studies that mm -hmm. we do. But we've got to track these people and make sure that um, they are living with these, these conditions because musculoskeletal changes continue to occur. Um, we know that disc herniations and disc bulges start in males and females in the teenage years. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's remarkable. Everyone needs to know that. If you, if you even touch someone who has a spine, you need to be aware of that so that when the imaging comes back in a 38-year-old and says they've got a bulging disc, you need to know how to give them the stats on how many other 38-year-olds are going to have a similar finding and not have pain. Sometimes the pain is related to the structural change, right? But we need confirmation of that. It needs to fit the picture. It needs to be hitting the L5 nerve on the left you know, that travels down the leg of the patient in the clinic symptoms. Yep. right in front of us, right? Like it has mm -hmm. to match. And um, we, we get really sloppy about those things. And we've got to come back to, to, uh, to, to taking pride and ownership over doing a good job with this. Sure. We've discussed, um, I guess we've touched on, picked on the spinal surgeons or just surgeons in general. We've picked on the therapy community and chiropractors. Um, not necessarily picking on them, but when it comes to spinal care and back pain, what about physiatrists? Because we're supposed to be rehab specialists. Um, what is the role of physiatrists when it comes to this topic? And are we doing a good job? It's a great question. Um, so we're not doing as good a job as we need to be. That's pretty clear because our outcomes aren't improving. For sure. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate, that's the most objective way to measure this. Uh, 
we must see our patients getting better and we must be able to document it in objective ways. And so from the physiatry standpoint, we have this tremendously rich experience as residents looking at all these functional deficits that people experience with neuromuscular diseases, neurological diseases and injuries and, um, and diseases of aging, right? And yet when it comes to spine pain, we often stop using those skills. And so from the, from the physiatry standpoint, that has to stop. We've got to do a better job incorporating those skills and employing them because that's what makes us different. You know, it's not just sufficient to, to, to point the needle in the right direction and make sure that you get it in the right location. Uh, because unfortunately, those are short-lived interventions. They don't permanently fix anything, right? The whole point is to hopefully ameliorate the symptoms enough to get the person active again. But that's mm -hmm. on us. That's what we do, right? Like we're part of the reactivation process and we need to be. And so I think that's an area where we stand to improve a lot uh, and actually enhance the value that we add to the healthcare system. I think we're diminishing our own value by not doing more of that. I think that physiatrists are actually in the perfect position to take care of this kind of specific complaint of lower back pain, just because um, I obviously haven't gone through the full training as you have yet. I'm still an intern, but um, based on the description and from other experiences, you learn a lot of physical exam skills. You see a lot of different deficits and people not being able to live their lives because of these deficits. So as you're talking about, we already have that, but we're not taking care of it. And we also are not surgeons, so we don't have that to offer, which in my opinion, I don't know the exact evidence on this, but vast majority of people probably should not be getting surgery for their back unless absolutely warranted. So we have like the perfect level of intervention if absolutely needed for these patients. But we also know like like complete rehab side, we know how to address therapy for these patients. So I think physiatrists need to take a much bigger role when it comes to lower back pain because we're perfectly situated right in the middle. Um, to kind of coordinate care for everyone. I think that's one of the most important parts when it comes to lower back pain. Completely agree. You know, there, for everything that we can offer patients, there needs to be a clear indication for it. You know, the, the whole uh, attitude of just trying stuff to see if it works is ridiculous. It's, it's, it's utterly unscientific. We shouldn't be content with that. We need to say, okay, we've got enough information to know that this is a really good treatment option for you right now based on what's going on. That's how we need to move. We need to move in that direction. And yeah, I think that, you know, working, working in teams, really trying to champion uh, more of a patient centered model where we collect the information that the patient needs to do well. And we put together plans and we, we see it through. That's something that physiatry does um, in, in many different ways. And it's something that we could add, you know, to hopefully improve how we take care of patients with back pain. For sure. When it comes to interventions, um, what interventions do you think physiatry can offer or what do they offer, I guess, that can help someone with back pain? Like for just a clarifying question, because a lot of people don't know physiatry is still, although we've had several mm -hmm. of them on this podcast, what kind of does a physiatrist do? What are the interventions possible? What do they specialize in? Yeah, so good question. So physiatrists are non-surgeons, so that means we're not we're not opening you know the body cavity up to um, do anything uh, um, that would introduce uh, new hardware. However, there are some micro procedures that are done under the skin. For example, spinal cord stimulation or neuromodulation 
Um, there are other types of things like kyphoplasty, where you're you're trying to address compression fractures. Um, and there are some newer newer options that are that are being offered out there: interspinous spacers, things like that, or stenosis. And so physiatrists traditionally have offered a lot of injections. You know, usually corticosteroids um, for inflammatory uh, conditions. The best example would be like an acute disc herniation where you have a nerve root irritation and you're trying to buy the patient time uh, in a pain-free way so that natural history can take over because most disc herniations, even large ones, in fact, sometimes especially large ones, do improve over time uh, significantly without the need for any kind of uh, surgical excision. And um, that's what we have to offer. But additionally, you have other things that you offer, which is team-based care. So you can know when to send someone to therapy. You can know when to send someone to a pain psychologist. You can know when to send someone to a health coach, uh, which is something that uh, we actually have in one of our clinics here uh, at UPMC now. Um, there's a new kind of clinic called a program, the program for spine health, uh, which is for chronic back pain with high risk features in patients. And um, there's a there's a very um, collaborative approach that's in place for that. So knowing when to use all of our resources at our disposal, including surgeons. So there will be times where there are clearly neurological deficits that need to be addressed surgically, right, or at least evaluated. Mm -hmm. And that's when we also have to know, all right, we've got to get them a consult, right, for the surgeon. Um, so, so not just the immediate procedures that we can offer through pain management or um, a traditional sort of sports and spine route, but also knowing how to employ all the resources on our team and at our disposal is part of what we can offer and do. Yeah, I'd like to think that the physiatrist is the quarterback in that care. Um, and going back to surgery a little bit, I know you did a podcast on the kind of prehab when it comes to surgery. Mm -hmm. um, prehab is kind of being thrown around a decent amount. Um, I think it was pretty popular maybe like two or three years ago, and I haven't heard it as much anymore, but it's still around. What is prehab? Is it like a valid thing to do before surgery? And is that something people should be thinking about if they absolutely are going to get surgery? So, so Prehab has been shown to be very effective in certain types of surgery already. Usually uh, abdominal surgery, transplant surgery, and then total hip and knee arthroplasty, for example. Those are some, some key examples. Uh, there are international prehab societies now with all of these uh, different players. Anesthesia has been involved with um, certain aspects of prehab clearance and migrating that into a prehab or prehabilitation approach. Um, with spine care, that is something that is evolving right now. So we see there's a breakdown between more of a physical activity or exercise-based prehabilitation or conditioning program, right? So you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to take someone who's in like bad physical condition, you're trying to improve their conditioning for surgery, which is a trauma, right? A big mm -hmm. trauma and improve the chances of their recovery or the rate of their recovery, 
right? Or, de or decrease the risk of muscle loss, you know, sarcopenia, things like that that can happen afterwards. Um, the other thing here, though, is more of a sort of um, educational or, or psychosocial intervention. So cognitive behavioral therapy is being looked at as well as pain mm. neuroscience education. One thing that we do know is that patients who undergo spine surgery, for example, feel like they do not have adequate information about the expectations of surgery. Once they come out of surgery, that's something they will consistently report, that they didn't have enough information beforehand, right? Like it was a big surprise mm. to them, the whole experience. And so that's something I'm involved with, uh, again, here at UPMC is trying to uh, work on a new program where we're actually addressing those issues. Um, so I do think that we're going to see a lot more of this evolve over the next few years. There are a couple of RCTs underway looking at prehabilitation in spine surgery. Um, one of my mentors is a guy named Rob Smeets, who's an MD, PhD in the Netherlands. And he's involved in one of those two major RCTs right now that's underway actually being looked at. Um, and so hopefully we'll get some good information on, on how those things, you know, can positively affect uh, the outcomes of surgery. It's a nice additional avenue for rehabilitation to play um, along the continuum of care. Definitely. I think that we've done a pretty decent quick and dirty on back pain. And before yeah. we jump kind of like to the higher picture policy questions that I have for you, because I know you're passionate about that. You talked about it being this podcast. Is there anything else you want to address when it comes to back pain that you feel like could be added to this quick and dirty? No, I think, I think that we've, we've really touched on most of the core elements here. Um, again, we've got to know what we're dealing with. We've got to understand the problem well. And um, something that, that physiatry can, can really add uh, to the mix is a good understanding of musculoskeletal conditions, the etiologies therein and try to better understand the course of recovery that a person can expect as we move forward uh, with their care plan. So sure. Yeah. And I think one of the other uh, overarching themes of this is also that we're trying to help patients get back to what they want to be doing, not necessarily completely pain-free, but we want those functional outcomes, quote unquote. Um, that so matters. <laughs> that matters that's the all, most, right? Like at the end of data, that's I all that matters. Yeah. I mean, the numerical rating scale or the VAS, like that's fine. But if they're not able to go out and spend some time with their grandkids or, you know, whatever they want to be doing in life, then, you know, what does that really mean to us? Exactly. So moving on to the bigger picture, um, you talked about kind of med student education, resident education when it comes to pain. But um, what specifically do you think that we can do for medical students based on your experience in medical school um, that we could improve this? Where are the areas for improvement? Is it another rotation? Is it adding things to the preclinical curriculum? Where do you see improvement here? So I think in the rotations themselves, probably two things need to happen. One is we need a, a more realistic um, training experience when it comes to pain. Like I said before, the differences between an acute trauma and a chronic pain um, etiology. And then we also need more exposure clinically to professionals who deal with musculoskeletal pain. So um, we, we don't have a big emphasis in our medical curriculum right now on on that particular 
element, right? Like we don't usually it's it's I it's IM or FM, organic diseases, general surgery, you know, general mm-hmm. pediatrics, OBGYN, psychiatry, bread and butter things that we need to know. But unfortunately, what that means is that the average intern who comes in, you know, to a system responsible uh, for patients as a practicing doctor uh, is not going to be well exposed to a lot of the common conditions that people experience over the course of the lifespan. And that's a problem because everyone experiences musculoskeletal disease in some way for the most part, right? At least we cite this constantly, but at least roughly 80% of people experience back pain in their adult lives. You can't ignore that. And just because it doesn't kill someone, you know, this isn't uh, a dialysis patient, right? Uh, But it severely degrades quality of life. And as people are living longer, it becomes a, a priority. Yeah. And also I think when it comes to, we touched on this in the last podcast with Dr. Bowers as well, but it also comes down to familiarity with who can help with the situation. Because mm-hmm. in my experience, when someone comes in, let's say whatever complaint they have, let's say you're on an FM rotation and you're helping manage their hypertension or diabetes medications, which is something that's very common. But then also the patient adds in, oh, I also have been having some back pain. Like, can you help me with this? What do I do about this? So either in my experience, either the issue gets brushed off, like it's Mm -hmm. not addressed, which also should not be happening. Although natural history is a thing and the pain might go away, it should still be addressed because it's something that might be significantly impacting the patient's life. Either Mm -hmm. it's brushed off or they're just like referred to a blanket PM&R referral if someone is good enough to know about PM&R or they just like go see therapy. And then who knows what the therapist is going to do? Who knows what's going on there? Next thing you know, they get an x-ray, blah, 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 downward cascade. So I think one of the things that can be improved there is really the um, understanding and the knowledge of all these different providers who can help with back pain and all these other musculoskeletal issues, who they should refer to, what the appropriate resources are so that they're not just kind of left hanging or with a haphazard, like halfway baked uh, reference to someone. Exactly. So there are a few medical schools that have required PM&R rotations, uh, typically as a fourth year. Uh, mm-hmm. The school where I went actually did have one in oh, wow. East Carolina. Yeah, Brody School of Medicine. And um, so so Dr. John Norberry and Dr. Uh, Clint Falk um, have been instrumental in, in developing that program there. A few other programs around the country. I think last time I looked a couple of years ago, there were around nine required clerkships in medical school. But we need mm-hmm. more of that. Medical students need to be exposed to this because one here, here's a, a big problem that we do have. And that is, you know, if you think about it as a musculoskeletal person, we aren't ordering like echoes for, for the heart, right? <laughs> because that's not what we do. Hopefully we, not. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. Most of us are not. We're not reading them. We don't know exactly how to tell, you know, um, if it's if it's a problem or not. So we don't order those tests. We send mm-hmm. them to someone who, ex, you know, has the expertise to do so. However, in primary care, routinely MRIs are ordered for the spine, despite the fact that um, knowing the prevalence of a disc bulge or disc herniation in the average population is not something that, you know, your PCP can rattle off the top of their head. And so understanding that we need to respect the differences in each body system uh, across the board, um, is something that comes through exposure, right? 
And so having more exposure as medical students, I think would improve on some of those issues that we're having. Definitely. Moving on to the resident side, you mentioned that residents, specifically in physical medicine rehab, get a lot of experience with the various different conditions and reasons that people have whatever disabilities or impedances, but they don't necessarily apply that to back pain for whatever reason. What can we do there to address that? Yeah, we treat the back very differently. You know, if, if you want to get a bicep stronger or or condition it, you know, for some kind of physical activity purpose, we tell people lift weights, right? Resist. What do we do about the back? We say, don't bend over. It's the exact opposite. It's very strange, right? And there's no evidence for why we should do it differently. Um, and so uh, you need people in our residency programs who are able to speak intelligently on these, these uh, discrepancies. And that's something that I think we can, we can definitely address. Um, but it has to be a concerted effort and you've got to have people who are, are, um, interested in correcting some of those problems. It is a problem though. And so I hope that some people will hear this podcast and, and realize it to be such and maybe even advocate for it in their own programs moving forward. And I know we do have some residents and medical students that listen to this. So if you are one of those listening to this, then just be cognizant of this so that you know what to do when that patient walks into your door in the hospital with back pain. That's right. Um, and then sense. taking it yeah. one level further to policy-wise, you mentioned some changes policy-wise that you would like to see um, that could kind of help provide better patient care. I know we're already 52 minutes in. I don't want to go another hour, but what are some of those like briefly that like the highest impact policy changes you would want to make? Yeah, I mean, just in general, we've got to have incentives that align with the evidence and that allow us to uh, carry out uh, the, the full scope of what we can offer patients. And so in order for us to address some of the behavioral elements that come with chronic pain problems, we've got to be reimbursed sufficiently for that time to do so. And that's a, that's a major problem we still have, right? Like we don't get paid to talk about certain types of issues that we know um, are, are, will impede progress with people. And so we've got to make sure that uh, our policies reflect um, the need there and allow us to be reimbursed for our time. And, and then things will change. You know, the way that you stop a certain bad behavior in medicine is you stop paying for it. <laughs> It'll stop overnight. It definitely will. And one of the things that you brought up earlier on is that uh, clinicians that are doing a lot of these interventions don't have the broad base of knowledge of the current literature of what's going on. And kind of reading that literature and communicating that to the patient is also a huge part of back pain because an understanding of back pain contributes to resolving back pain because now they know what's going on. But um, that time is not paid for, obviously, counseling. So it would definitely fix it. All right. Wrapping this up, um, if you're in a coffee shop and someone asks you, how do I get healthy in two minutes? What do you tell them? So I'm going to take a page from uh, one of my mentors. Um, and, and so Chris Standard says that, that everyone needs, needs five things in life. And um, I think this is a really good way to, to frame it. You know, exercise or physical activity or impact, sleep nutrition, social connectedness, and purpose, right? And so for someone to get healthy, they need to be thinking through those five things, right? 
And I think that we can use that framework as physicians, especially as physiatrists who care about function and recovery and, and um, getting people back to doing what they want to do in life. We can use that framework to better understand what health is and what makes a person healthy. Perfect. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on. This was an absolutely incredible episode and a masterclass. I hope that our listeners back home enjoyed this and got something out of this. Jim, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. Take care. All right. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-B-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.